Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster and I am delighted to be joining you today. This is uh, February 1st, the first day of Black History Month, the month where we, mm-hmm. we think deeply about the idiocy of the taxonomy of human races and how preposterous it all is and why we should simply reject it outright. Because we certainly wouldn't do something as stupid as venerate people on the basis of their phenotype and insist that historical events happen and ought to be attributed to people based on their race. Because that's weird. Maybe we wouldn't do that. Is that both good and bad? We wouldn't do that. That would be bad. Um, joined by Michael Moynihan, Matt Welch, who may or may not agree with my perspective on various things, uh, but I'm right about them. So here we are together, assembled. I just, I just want to know, like, um, so TripAdvisor sent me an email yeah. uh, today yeah. uh, saying your go-to guide for black travel. Yes. Um, what? What should I? <laughs> what should I do? Am I allowed to do black travel? Do I follow? Do I like? Do I go to the opposite places of black travel because I don't that would, qualify? That's, that's racist. You travel, don't. Right? You don't qualify. Are you sure you don't qualify? How can you know? I'm not sure. Do they send you a Pantone I, chart and tell you you don't. You don't qualify. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very <laughs> confusing. Because <laughs> I, as I understand I it, you find, are an octoroon, Matt Welch. <laughs> I can find <laughs> top black owned spots to yes. eat, stay, and shop. Yes. This the, the subhead and there then, is get get all our best recommendations and stories for black travelers all in one place for Black History Month and do, beyond. Do, find top black owned sports spots to eat, stay, and shop, and follow some of our favorite what? guides on their journeys around the world. Presumably these would be Negroid guides because only a Negroid guide can guide you places. TripAdvisor. So TripAdvisor is, is suggesting, I'm just going to, I just, if we can break this down in the most basic way, TripAdvisor is suggesting that black people eat at different restaurants. (laughs) Isn't that? They they eat at black only restaurants. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So is that like, is this kind of like TripAdvisor meets the lunch counter at Woolworths <laughs> in 1965? Kind of what it seems like. It feels that way. It feels that way. It's really bit. weird because unlike TripAdvisor, I eat at restaurants where there are lots of black people yeah. and lots of white people and lots of Hispanic yeah, people. Yeah, well, that's because you're and, a bad person. Are they saying I shouldn't go Yeah, there? you're a bad person. Uh, apparently, that's bad of me. at least for black people, maybe the whites can eat where they like, but the black people, they ought to eat with their own kind. That is what TripAdvisor mm. believes. Black History Month, stick with your own people. <laughs> Thank you. I thought that's what college was where you for. came from. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you remember there was a book in the nineties, and it was like, why? Do you remember the, this book it was like, why are all the black kids eating together? Do you remember the name of that book? No, mm-hmm. I don't remember that. Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it was it was because it was. I remember reading like at at my school, which is a busing school. Yeah. Like there was classes. There were there's tables that were like the black kids and their tables the white kids, and um, I I didn't think that was like a positive thing. I thought that maybe that book was like, this is not the best thing, that all the black people are eating together and all the white people are eating together. But and they're not integrated. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was the that was the thrust of the book. That was, the, I believe, that, the thrust yeah. of that book. Though I don't remember the name, so maybe I don't remember the thrust either. But the thrust would strike me that it was the opposite of, say, doing a trip advisor. <laughs> so <laughs> I just want to in the future refer to separate but equal 
as TripAdvisor. <laughs> We're going to TripAdvisor at this restaurant. I want to thank TripAdvisor for this. Yes. Yeah. Do you think a white person came up with that shit? I think it did. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I mean, 100%. Yeah. I mean, this is this is actually the move. Like, if you are, in fact, a racist and you've wanted segregation now and segregation forever, like, this is the way to pursue it. <laughs> I'm sorry, segregation tomorrow <laughs> and segregation forever, yes. Yes, yeah, that's right. We don't have enough of it in America, and that's what will make America great. Um, but I, I did um, – I, I recently was reading um, uh, some W.E.B. Du Bois – um, and I rediscovered a, a very short tract of his. It's a very long essay, I guess, um, called The Conservation of Race. And it is mm-hmm. an astonishing, astonishing document. Like, I, like astonishingly bad. Yeah. I mean, I know that, that he has plenty of bad ideas. Um, as Moynihan has reminded me oh, yes. a few times, he was a, a, <laughs> oh, yes. a devout Stalinist. Um, like literally yeah, a Stalinist. Like a, 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 Not like we're insulting him. He's like... Yeah. He's like Stalin was in charge, and he said Stalin's he's actually cool. a really. Good guy. Uh, can I? Can I? Before Please, can, Camille continues, yeah. can I read the first uh, couple of sentences of W. E. B. Du Bois's um, obituary for Stalin that was published in the National oh, Guardian please. on March sixteenth, nineteen fifty three? He's having to call this up. Fifty three. Yeah, right 53, after he died. Fifty three. Yeah. In in I, in case you were on the fence of what W. E. B. Du Bois thought about Stalin, here is the first sentence: Joseph Stalin was a great man. <laughs> Few other men of the 20th century approaches stature. Stature. He was simple, calm, and courageous. He seldom lost his poise. <laughs> what? Mass murder is maybe losing your poise. Pondered his problems slowly, made his decisions clearly and firmly, never never yielded to ostentation, nor coyly refrained from holding his rightful place with dignity. He was the son of a serf, but stood calmly before the great without hesitation or nerves. But also, and this was the highest proof of his greatness, he knew the common man felt his problems and followed his fate. Joseph Stalin, ladies and gentlemen, mass murderer and one of the worst dictators of the 20th century. So bad, in fact, that the following, the next, not the exact next, that was Malenkov, the actual proper next um, Soviet leader, Khrushchev, denounced him and and then they changed the name of anything that had Stalin's name on it because even Khrushchev knew he was a piece of shit W.E.B. Du Bois didn't think so So. blowing up 100 foot tall statues of the guy uh, and W.E.B. Du Bois is is totally cool he was making 120 foot statues of him (laughs) and lest we forget um, it's not as if we didn't know the crimes of the Soviet Union in the 1930s. I'm looking at a book that I just got called Kennan, A Life Between Worlds by Frank Constigliola, probably massacring his last name because it's too far away from my old man glasses, but it's a new biography. It looks great. I uh, started pouring into it. Kennan was a U.S. diplomat in Russia in the 1930s, and he documented this stuff and also popularized it. It was like in the popular uh, uh, press at the time, the incredible murderous crimes of the regime. There is no excuse for not knowing it as any kind of motivatedly interested person um, by 1940, <laughs> let alone 1953. Now, Camille, I'll get back to what really offends you about <laughs> Boys, which was not his murderous dictator apology. Well, yeah, no, but I appreciate that Black History moment there, Michael Moynihan, and I'm sure, yeah. yes. <laughs> I'm sure that yes. it's precisely yes. what W.E.B. Du Bois, who, who was actually instrumental 
in helping to bring about uh, Black History Month, which started as Black History Week. Um, he was uh, was it called Black Stalin? <laughs> <laughs> it was Black Stalin would be a great black exploitation, great movie. band name, Black Stalin. Oh he was God, a progenitor yeah. of a Detroit of a, of a movement to try and document <laughs> the history of African American peoples. But this book, the Conser- conservation of race, the conceit of this book is that race is this enduring historical <laughs> concept. And in many respects, he talks about it in these like kind of glowing terms as he, he it acknowledges that it's a crude scientific concept, that it doesn't really capture anything biologically, although he kind of, there's a bit of double talk there, but he goes on to talk about it as this kind of innovation and a valuable tool that needs to be conserved and outlines this belief of his that it is the duty of black peoples to work together, and particularly the talented 10th, but black people collectively to work together to effectively earn their place amongst the rest of the races of the world, to to do something and to contribute something to the annals of history and and to create things in the culture broadly that are distinctly black. And in that way, we can kind of fully dignify ourselves and be a part of history and and be fully dignified and um, attain our place uh, among the ranks of mankind. Um, and it's it's actually a really grotesque ideal, and it it strikes me as so awful because my very firm conviction is that the dignity of any person is rooted in their humanity, and that to make the argument for your dignity on the wrong basis. Um, for example, the basis of like your phenotype or some preposterous idea that you have to earn your place, you have to do something, achieve something in the world collectively um, in order to be kind of fully respected um, and redeemed, um, I think is gross. And there is a very real sense in which like Du Bois did some good things. Du Bois confronted racists who would routinely in, employ kind of a scientific racism, like look at these disparities. It means that the blacks are no good. Um, and he would go in and document the various ways that these disparities were far more complicated um, or had a lot to do with circumstances and were not kind of innate to black people. Mm. But he went further than that. He went further than pushing back against uh, racial bias against blacks and bypassed the opportunity to push past the notion that people are to be essentialized in this way and instead decided to conserve the race idea, but also to kind of sanctify it and deify it with this, this assertion that at some point in the future, we won't need this anymore and we'll get rid of it. But perpetuating a fiction um, can have tangible harms. And I think it is, uh, it's worthwhile for people to know that W.E.B. Du Bois, one of his, his, crowning achievements is helping to to create the kind of world that we live in today. One where people preposterously and very sadly, like still confidently thump their chest and profess themselves as black or white or whatever else. Um, and I guess you perhaps aren't so proudly professing yourself white for the most part, um, but professing yourself black in a very essential social way. scientists. And there's something about that. Right. that social scientists in, in the time that he was, I mean, he was a, he was a sociologist and a social scientist around the turn of the century and afterwards, and social scientists of that time uh, and people who dabbled in it, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is the one who comes immediately to mind, 
was just over the National History Museum. They they can't completely hide him there. He still got his fingerprints all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the one of the many multi-volume histories that Teddy Roosevelt uh, wrote, the opening lead paragraph is like, I think that the advancement of the Aryan peoples and the Caucasian peoples is the most important, you know, triumph of, of humanity the world has yeah. ever seen. Um, so that those beliefs were really common. Yes. Uh, a grotesquely common in the progressive era in which Du Bois uh, came in, and it is a crying shame that he didn't take that as an opportunity to maybe question those premises specifically into like places where you can go with that. Um, but it is was also just yeah, horrifyingly yeah. common. This is where Woodrow Wilson comes from. This is where so much wickedness in the way that we um, uh, carry out public policy having to do with race and otherwise came from is particularly that era and particularly the social sciences who really thought they had it all yeah. figured out. Um, no, that's exactly right. In the same, in the same essay, he actually pushes back particularly against, um, kind of black intellectuals of the time who saw race for the fiction it was and were promoting a more individualist perspective about, um, the, the, the kind of black person. And suggesting that this was a better way to cast people. In fact, that, that Zora Neale Hurston quote, which I've alluded to on a number of occasions where she talks about discarding race pride and insists that every, every white man is not an Einstein and every black man is not a carver. Uh, and if you have any doubts about that, you should look around. Um, he's pushing, he's pushing back deliberately against that idea and insisting that people need to embrace Race. They need to embrace the notion of racial achievement, of race solidarity, and that this is indispensable um, when it comes to to achieving things in the future. And it's interesting. I mean, even people like um, MLK, who is generally celebrated for like really high ideals about um, the, con- the the content of our character, is the phrase that usually comes to mind, is not someone who was completely liberated from the taxonomy of race. And was someone who believed that it was important to kind of forge these bonds of solidarity amongst fellow black peoples. So there's a real sense in which the taxonomy, like the great victory of the the kind of racist project throughout history, is persuading people to believe that the taxonomy is legitimate and ought to be preserved, um, even in a world where we insist that it it shouldn't matter, that that's what we aspire to. Um, and today we're told by many activists that if we disregard race, we won't be able to identify or address um, actual deprivation and harm in the world. And it's just preposterous. If you can't recognize a poor person who happens to be black, then I think that's a problem. Uh, but again, if you're obsessing over disparities, then that's a separate problem. But I don't want to go on too long about this. Uh, we've, we've talked no, about- Just to point out that there was, there was pushback um, in interesting places uh, of that type of idea at the turn of the century. And one of the weird ones, which I don't, I don't think I've pointed this out before, but I'm, I'm always struck by it, is um, in The Great Gatsby. Mm. And the very brutish figure of Tom Buchanan mm-hmm. mentions uh, the Madison Grant book and the Lothrop Stoddard, Stoddard book as a kind of portmanteau. He refers to it as Goddard, uh, which is quite, it's quite funny. It's the passing of the great race. Mm-hmm which was uh, the book that was all the rage at the time. And he brings it up and it's not brought up to make him look good. And um, yeah. it's, it's interesting that, that it's kind of pushed back. Uh, Hemingway also pushed back on it in the subtitle of one of his books too. But, but uh, it's really interesting that that stuff was actually being pushed back upon very quickly 
um, at the turn of the century. It wasn't universal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but those kind of those uh, sci- that kind of scientific racism. Also, people like Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who was a big influence in a lot of the Germans. Who actually, I think he, ma- no, I don't think I know he married into the Wagner family of uh, Richard Wagner's daughter, I believe, mm-hmm. maybe his daughter. I think it was his daughter. But yeah, it, the the common kind of thing is, which is why it annoys me. We talked about Ken Burns on the uh, paid. Uh, episode, the last one we did, you should go back and subscribe and listen to it. Um, and about Burns talking in his new documentary about all these ideas that, that Hitler got from, from Jim Crow and everything. Um, I'm not a fan of that argument, but it also kind of elides the fact that these scientific, quote unquote, scientific claims were very, very common, mm-hmm. um, and, um, very, very silly, but, um, turns out very, very, very silly, but they were believed by a lot of people. Yeah. So. I want I want people to go back and re-listen to uh, Michael's reading of that uh, uh, Dubois um, uh, description of Stalin, obituary from Stalin, um, and like the certitude of oh, yeah. it. Or just go back and read it. The certitude and imagine saying that, uh, committing that to writing uh, as a journalist or just as a human being about anybody. Yeah. I might say that about someone I know extremely well. Like maybe one of the two of you guys, depending on the day. I don't know. Like, like I would, I wouldn't, uh, like I wouldn't write it about myself certainly because I would not not accomplish so much and I wasn't as great a man as Stalin apparently. But um, like you don't know any politician that well at this point in our lives. We know some politicians and some of them we know pretty well. Some of of whom we've had on the show. Um, I wouldn't say that about any of them. I don't know them. How could you possibly know those Mm -hmm. things? Um, And it's a, it's a great ticket into how people lose their sense of, of, of critical faculty when dealing with sniffing the, 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 the musky jock of whatever fucking politician that they like. And you see this in a lot of different corners. There's a cult of personality in every single political corner, and it's grotesque. I mean, it's just, regardless of the fact that he's a mass murderer, even if he was the Dalai Lama, and the, and uh, for the moment, let's pretend the Dalai Lama is really great, <laughs> um, besides being just good with fashion. Um, I mean, like you would, that's embarrassing to write that about anybody. So stop having that certitude about people that you just know from afar. If, if there's sake. anyone <laughs> that outdid Du Bois in their eulogy for, for Joseph Stalin. Oh God. It was Paul Robeson, actually. Mm, um, well, the great singer and, uh, activist, uh, who, uh, you can just look this up, but, uh, you know, the great Stalin, it's, you know, stood the great Stalin, but today in Korea and Southeast Asia in Latin America, in the West Indies, in the Middle East and Africa, one sees tens of millions of long oppressed colonial people surging towards freedom, that was made possible by the glorious <laughs> Stalin, Slava, 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 Stalin, glory to Stalin. So, yeah, I mean, that was uh, a thing amongst um, people who had incredibly bad ideas. But uh, it's often forgotten about because the, the university that I went to while I was there renamed the library after W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, th- these bad ideas never came up. Came up for debate anyway. I think some... Some jerk like me probably did bring them up. But, uh, but I, by the way, I don't think you shouldn't name the the um, library at the at the University of Massachusetts no. against uh, uh, shouldn't shouldn't refuse it to W. E. B. Du Bois, who did a lot of great things and a lot of uh, really interesting stuff actually early in his career, 
is uh, far more interesting than late Du Bois. And I think David- Great charts, actually. Great. <laughs> so, wh- no, seriously. No, like, I, yeah, yeah. He made beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. charts uh, and tables. And uh, it was David Levering Lewis yeah. who wrote a very good uh, book about, uh, I think, two- Two volume book about which, which, if you read, it's it's worth reading because he's a really interesting guy. Yeah. And the fact that he was a shitbag Stalinist should not take away from his um, his uh, you know really positive contributions and negative contributions. But he was a he was an important figure. And you have to remember important figures even for the bad things and the good things that they do. Yeah, that's right. So. Name statues, name statues and buildings yeah. after them. We'll name the buildings after them. Build yeah, statues okay. of them. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, whatever floats your boat. Something like that. Um, plenty of other stuff going on in the world today that's probably worth paying a little bit of attention to. Um, the the former president of the United States and the current governor of Florida are apparently beefing, at least a little bit. Uh, Donald Trump taking some a swipes bit. A bit. at Ron this week. Um, that's probably yeah. worth paying a little attention to. Apparently, there was, uh, there was an assassination, uh, if some of you may remember, of the prime minister of Haiti. And this today, actually, the Justice Department announced that there were several people who were being extradited for having perpetrated this crime. Apparently, they are Americans. So that's kind of weren't most Colombian. Were they Colombian? I think there were a lot of Colombians. I didn't see. There's a story today. I actually didn't see the story today. This is a, a rare. Wow, interesting. And also, Camille, I'm sure you saw the news. I did see the news that um. Uh, they, yeah, the U.S. charged four key suspects that uh, that the the Jamaicans, your heritage, um, were saying we are ready to send troops to Haiti, which Uh-oh. I I am all in support of. That it's a small country <laughs> doing this sort of imperialism. In America. <laughs> Go right ahead. Even small guys can do it. So, I don't I don't know if I actually. Yeah, last time we had a good Caribbean a good Caribbean war. Just it's like kind of there's never been a good war. war. Island versus never been island. a good war. Maybe a necessary war, yeah. perhaps, but there's never a good war. War uh, is hell. Okay. Matt, well, there were there were three Haitian Americans and one Colombian, and they were in uh, Miami, and they're being extradited to Haiti. Okay, where I'm sure they'll be treated with uh, the utmost fairness. Jeez. <laughs> so, I mean, that's but that's a wild wild situation. There, I mean, there aren't many head of states that are being um, assassinated, um, and not every day that the Justice Department is releasing statements about people getting extradited uh, for having perpetrated such things so it's just kind that of said the chances of the chances of such a plot happening in miami it's about one and two <laughs> yeah it's about, it's about a 75 percent. that's where most plots is that a florida man <laughs> story literally. is that what that is yeah okay yeah well florida man is florida <laughs> miami yeah. man <laughs> is kumonger golpista <laughs> as they're eating your face on a bridge yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah which turned out not to be bad yes. salts if memory serves um, it was not basalt. That was a myth. That was a myth. Yeah. Uh, Fake news, I believe you call it. And uh, a couple of other things happening as well. I, I guess there's some curriculum brouhaha, some other campus brouhaha. Um, there is some new developments in Ukraine. Uh, apparently, there has been a dispute about whether or not to give them jets. And uh, that is been decided um, not in their favor. Um, but yeah. things continue to proceed in a way that isn't quite great for the Ukrainians. Um, gentlemen, I don't know where you want to start, uh, but I have my suspicion that it might have something to do with objectivity in the newsroom, which is I think that's an probably interesting, to an interesting topic that finds itself back in the news. There was an opinion piece, uh, the title of which was Newsrooms That Move Beyond Objectivity Can Build Trust. 
That is the headline. <laughs> um, this seems to be a, a reprisal of a, a story that was in the New York Times before, written by Wes Lowry, who we had on the podcast, about the need for moral clarity in journalism, which took a rather similar approach, suggesting that the old outmoded notion of journalistic objectivity should be pushed aside so that we could pursue moral clarity. I mean, you moral clarity just by the way means the opinions of the journalists yes. who happens to be writing this. Story. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. are there, are there new beats being introduced here? Or is this very much the same sort of argument that's being posited here in the Washington post, which is, it's interesting that this is happening around the time that there are layoffs happening at the post there are rumors swirling about Jeff Bezos perhaps being interested in selling the post in order to buy um, the the Washington Redskins or the team formerly known as the Washington really Redskins. Do you think free up cash for that? Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> no. Amazon like has had a little bit of difficulty. Amazon's had a little difficulty. I mean, He's building now. like super yachts and stuff. Who knows? But he may also just want to get out of there because he was also at at the Washington Post for some meetings like sitting down with people, talking through things, trying to get a sense of how the newsroom worked. And yeah. uh, apparently this, he owned his conclusion after that was maybe I should get rid of this thing, yeah. <laughs> um, um, which he saw the stash. <laughs> dude, yeah. what? This is the fucking people who are writing the news. Jesus. But what did you guys <laughs> see answer, in this piece? To answer your question, uh, uh, Camille, what's new about this is uh, two aspects, maybe three. Not, not that new, but somewhat new is uh the author of it is Leonard Downey, Len Downey, as yeah. he's known. He's a, the former executive editor of the Washington Post. He worked his entire career, not a day for a single other newspaper in his life or news organization in his life. He's now uh, at the uh, at Arizona State's uh, uh, journalism mm-hmm. school. And he attached to this thing a study that he did interviewing top editors in 75 newsrooms. And in many uh, cases, the most appalling thing uh, about this piece, besides the writing, um, <laughs> it's amazing. That's seriously like, can I just read the lead? I'll read the lead. There's, I, I sent it to you guys earlier because I want yeah, both really of you terrible. to read sections out loud because it's so bad and different mm-hmm. parts will will cut in your throat. But just like. People, I've been doing journalism now for 36-ish years, and there's a thing Ooh. that you do in yeah, – <laughs> old, almost old as Camille's oh been alive. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's yeah, right. That is it's bad. You know me, 36. Um, Good Lord. 36 and a half. Uh, and uh, uh, so I'm going to read the lead and see if you could spot the thing that you should stop doing by around your sophomore year. Mm-hmm. Um Uh, Amid all the profound challenges and changes roiling the American news media today, newsrooms are debating whether traditional objectivity should still be the standard for news reporting. Objectivity is defined by most dictionaries. Don't do it. Don't do it. Is defined by most dictionaries. He went to the dictionary definition in the lead. In the lead. In the lead. Good I think this article was actually written by ChatGPT. That is, yeah, this, is definitely, this is definitely a fucking chatbot. <laughs> Objectivity so, is defined by most dictionaries. It's this fucking craftwork record. Good lord, the robots so, are back. <laughs> he interviews his research project, uh, and he's a million years old. The research uh, project interviews uh, 75 people and their quotes, which we'll get to some of which later. In fact, I want maybe Camille to read at least one of them because I'm sure he liked the, the Associated Press one. If you have it yeah, in front of you, stop coughing. Um, uh, gal, yeah, right. it's, uh, yeah, we're all coughing off mic these days, but, uh, it's, um, that 
he is the epitome of kind of um, the the hostage note, right? Margaret Sullivan was similar to this. She used to write for the Washington Post. She's a genius. She was- <laughs> <laughs> She's gloves are off now that she's writing for the guardian yeah um she, she's someone who went from the buffalo news where she was the editor-in-chief and then she had a media column or she was the ombudsman at the uh, media critic at the new york times for four years and became uh, famous then a column for the washington post and she decided that the nicole hannah jones revolution was the good side and that the other people were the bad side and so she really likes the moral clarity kind of argument even though she comes from this uh, len downey comes so much from the opposite side of this argument that in his real Really, really dreadful book uh, from 20 years ago called The News About the News, which I reviewed for reason in a uh, omnibus piece called Woe is Media, back when we had stupid puns for headlines that I generally wrote. Um, uh, he, uh, he wrote it with Robert Kaiser, also a uh, Washington Post lifer. He would refuse to vote himself. He wouldn't vote in elections. That was his sense of like what he a, mentions uh, that in this piece. Which he mentions in the piece as, and he also mentions uh, somewhere up high that you would think would kind of negate the whole idea, which is that I was one of the editors for here or whatever, uh, from the time that I worked as his managing editor and then his executive editor for 18 years, I never understood what objectivity meant. I didn't consider it a standard for our newsroom. Didn't My he look up for- the diff- dictionary <laughs> definition? <back? laughs> he would have changed everything. Um, so like, w- w- we're already dealing with an incredible straw man you're like solving the problem that wasn't even in your own brain in your own like tightest sense of things a problem back then but also he wants to like move his sail in the direction of the wind so it's these people who are like yes, trying right. super late in life to become so woke and i'll read one more of these paragraphs because they're impossible to deal with um but uh that like and he repeats this formulation at some point 17 times in a completely unreadable piece Meanwhile, American society, it's think about the sentence structure here, by the way. Meanwhile, American society itself has been in upheaval over discrimination against and abuse of women, persistent racism, (laughs) persistent racism and white nationalism. Yes, sure. We've been upheaval. (laughs) Police, police brutality and killings. Upheaval. The treatment of LGBTQ plus people. Mega upheaval. Income inequality Not so and <laughs> social problems. Yeah, but well, that's blunt. Im- immigration and the treatment of immigrants. Oh, we're so the- upset. <laughs> the causes and effects of climate change. Oh, upheaval. Lowest upheaval. on the list of voter concerns, but go ahead. Voting rights and election inequality and, and let's just put this at the end, and even the very survival of our democracy. Right. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. anything amazing. else, Len, while you're at That's it, amazing. before you fucking keel over? I'm sh- Good Lord. By the way, there is nothing. There's two things about this, which is really funny. When he says that our newsrooms reflect one vision, and it's very white, and it's just all the same. And then he says that this is the things that Americans are concerned about. <laughs> Take those two thoughts together, and then put them together, and then put them in a bag and shake it up, and you realize what? You're living in a motherfucking bubble, dude. The people who all have the same views, that is the That's problem, it. but you're offering the wrong solution. And you're also saying that people care about all these things that only you and your friends talk about, nobody else gives a fuck. Literally, nobody else gives a fuck. Do you think elections are won? I know you don't vote, so you probably don't know anything about this stuff. But do you think elections are won on people saying, like, I don't know what's going to happen with environmentalism next week or uh, police violence? 
I got to go to the polls. That's what you're talking about. That's not what other people are talking about. And the great thing about this piece, um, and I say that with deep sarcasm because there's nothing good about it. The great thing about this piece is that it's just an amazing mirror to the way people like this think and they presume that the American people actually reflect their own views and their own quote unquote concerns. I don't think he's concerned about any of those things. These are all, you know, points to argue about, but it's just sort of demonstrating this is what the young people think. But Matt, if you'd like to continue, it is, it, it is mostly about that, isn't it? About the young journalists, mm-hmm. rather than saying, no, you're fucking wrong and you're 22 and you don't know jack shit. He puts his hands up as the Khmer Rouge comes into Phnom Penh and says, let's arrest everybody with glasses on. He's like, okay, let's do it. He doesn't say, no, no, you guys are being crazy. He says, you guys are right because I want to go out. And he's the guy that's saying like the 80-year-old guy, 70-year-old, 50-year-old guy who comes into the kids' party. He's like, you know, I really like this Cardi B, right, guys? Like, no, nobody. Stop trying to be cool, dad. He writes, cool dad writes um, uh, that the concept of of uh, objectivity, and this is now a quote, in today's diversifying newsrooms, uh, they feel, the uh, uh, reporters, they feel it negates many of, negates, <laughs> these are reporters, negates many of their own identities, life experiences, what? and and cultural contexts, <laughs> keeping, <laughs> keeping them... From pursuing truth in their work. That's babble. It doesn't mean anything, you fucking idiot. Are you joking? It negates. Like, what is that? That none of that means anything. Uh, I know the words, but and I don't know the assembly of the words don't make any sense. Jesus fucking Christ. Is that real? I read that. I don't know how I saw that. Yeah, I must have. Uh, you were like uh, tripping on LGBTQ plus, and so yeah. it's hard to, to yeah. keep uh, focused. Uh, but no, it's and the editing. More and more journalists of color and younger white reporters, including LGBTQ plus people in increasingly diverse. This is a different paragraph in increasingly diverse newsrooms believe. Does he just control V? That, that fills yeah, out a word did. count pretty quick. It's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Believe that the concept of objectivity has prevented truly accurate reporting informed by their own backgrounds, experiences, <laughs> and points of view. This is, by the way, can I just point out, people of these quote-unquote backgrounds don't all think the same. Really? Though you believe that they that do, seems Len to be the explicit premise of this article, Michael oh, Wynette. I'm not sure if you're correct about that. I want to quote Sally Busby. You know yeah. Sally Busby. She is the current executive editor, and she has a great name, Sally Busby. It's fantastic. Um, who says there is some, she, this is in the piece, uh, which literally is the only piece that gets, it gets shittier as you read it, and it's just like you hope it explodes. It's like a letter bomb. <laughs> At the end of it, it's like, you know, blow my hands off, like, you know, the Mossad just found an, a guy in, living in Syria who works for Hamas. It's, I, am, I am about to blow my hands off here. There is some confusion about the value of good reporting versus point of view. Sally Busby says this. Now, that's a good premise. That's a good start. There is some confusing. There's some confusion. Let me clear up that confusion. Well, no, that's not what Sally Busby says. Said current post executive Sally Busby, who noted that many journalists want to make a difference on such issues as climate change, immigration, and education. 
Get a different fucking job. <laughs> if you want, you want to be an activist, go ahead. I'm great. That's fantastic. I'm sure you'll do some fantastic work. But this is akin to saying the person who is in the NFL wants to score more goals from the blue line in hockey. Well, yes, it's a different <laughs> sport. Go fucking play hockey. You're playing journalism right now. And you're like, well, what is happening? Why can't I make a difference you make a difference, you dummy, by actually providing people with the news, not your shitty 24-year-old opinion that is, you know, based in no real practical experience, but only in some unbelievably overpriced education that your annoying parents paid for. And that's it. It's not as if you know the solution to all this stuff, but you tend to think that you do. The point of people like Len Downey and Sally Busy Busy Busby is to say that we are in our 90s and we actually know that you cannot solve this stuff by inserting your identity into a news story. Seems rather obvious to me. And also, like, is climate change a, 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 a binary topic? Um, it's different you know, for LGBTQ people. <laughs> <It's, yeah. laughs> Women and people of color most impacted. So. Um, these things yeah. kind of, uh, this kind of bend, uh, but, uh, if it was that simple, it would be that simple. Like, uh, so if climate change is your topic, then you super love uh, fracking and nuclear power, right? Of course. Do you? Um, you, you I, by not. the way, big props to the worst person on the planet, Oliver Stone, who apparently just made a film about why all these liberals are being annoying because you want to save the planet, which he does. You'd care about nuclear energy. And uh, apparently that's his new film. No. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen that. But um, there is somebody I believe from the San Francisco Chronicle who said something similar to Sally Busby. So this is, you know, two is enough to make make an idea for a piece here. We're trying to create an environment in which we don't police our journalists. Oh, the LA Times. We don't police our journalists too much. Um, don't do that. That's called editing, and you should police them because they're young and stupid. Our young people want to be participants in the world. Okay, once again, this is babble. This is not this meaningless nonsense. They want to be participants in the world? You go get fucking coffee in the morning. You're a participant in the world, you dummy. The one thing that they're trying to say is they want to affect change in the world, which again, is not the job for them. They should not be journalists. They can go out and be opinion journalists. They can be activists. They can work at Human Rights Watch. I salute all the people who do those sorts of things. But why are we trying to ACLU this? Because when people started coming to the ACLU and saying, no, 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 we don't want to support civil liberties for everybody. We want to only support the civil liberties for those that we agree with. And so therefore, we'll change the organization entirely. What they're trying to do is come in and change the purpose of journalism. And idiots like Len Downey. I keep on saying dummies because I'm, I'm censoring myself, the things I want to actually say, are saying, go right ahead. Maybe we're wrong. We didn't do it right in the past. I, I, I'm sorry. You didn't do it right in the past, but not for these reasons. Is there anything in the piece that, the thing- that stands out to you guys as, as sort of getting it right? I mean, Joseph Kahn, uh, executive editor of New York Times, is also quoted in the piece. Uh, and, you know, he has some, he's the some lines that sound that. accurate. You can't be sound, that's the, a New York best, Times yeah. journalist and also be an activist, which, yes, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sure. That's correct. Weirdly, the Times is the only people in this article that is uh, the only voice in the and, article that is sensible, yeah. And in all of the uh, coverage of Joseph Kahn when he took over from D- Dean Baquet, you could see him 
agonizing, choosing his words so carefully because that's where he's been at on this question. Then Dean Beck, hey, kind of leaned in that direction, but also caved mostly. And we've talked about him in mm-hmm. the past. Um, but Joseph Kahn cle- has a point of view on this, but also is trying to navigate what is a political job. Dean Beck, hey, was a consummate politician. He's someone I worked with at the LA Times. He was a total politician there. Uh, Joseph Kahn is not. And he's, you know, he was a Wall Street, uh, uh, or he was, uh, 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 bureau chief in, I believe, Hong Kong, uh, in Asia and, uh, comes and he's like super, uh, blue blood type of, uh, of, uh, of East Coaster. Like he's a fancy lad. And he doesn't come from the wing of the New York Times that has been pushing through a lot of the more, um, 1619 project types of things. And he's got to tread very carefully. And he does. And I think he threads the needle pretty well here. But I think that the more uh, telling, um, preponderance is in the other direction. And the one quote that I would point us to comes from a uh, former executive editor of the Associated Press named Kathleen Car- Carroll. And again, we're doing a straw man here because we've been talking about the, in the journalism profession when it talks to itself has been talking about the outdated notion of the word and the concept of objectivity since roughly the time that I was born. This is a super common Very old argument, period yeah. of uh, or a, a, a subject of conversation uh, in the 60s and 70s with the new journalism, and a bunch of other things like that. It was an attack on that concept. And a lot of people began to infiltrate those newsrooms that shared the kind of new journalistic idea that th- that was an outdated notion. So keep that in the back of your mind as you listen to this quote from Kathleen Carroll. AP, former executive editor, AP, which everybody subscribes to, um, every uh, news organization. It's objective by whose standard, she asked. <laughs> that standard seems to be quite <laughs> capitalized, yes. educated, yeah. yes, fairly wealthy. Wait, so the journalist journal should be uneducated? <laughs> and when people, well, I think they should be, but that's a different, and when people don't feel like they find themselves in news coverage, Nonsense. it's because they don't fit that definition. Kathleen Carroll, just, yeah. you're supposed to be a journalist. You are not actually describing reality of the news business at all correctly, not even a little bit. Like the reason why uh, newspapers in particular, big city newspapers like the Washington Post, the New York Times and elsewhere cater to more affluent people is not because of the objectivity of white. It's because they want, especially the newspaper monopolies, the one paper towns that uh, that made on average 25 percent profit margins for four decades. It's like an amazing run that almost no industry had is because they were monopolists and monopolists choose their audience. Who are they going to choose? They're going to choose the richest people in town. Watch. I am not defending, by the way. I criticize that tons of times. And in fact, in our conversation with Wesley Lowry, who is infinitely smarter than Len Downey and more interesting and backed up his contentions and we had a very good conversation um uh part of that part of my critique and his critique even though we disagree about stuff comes from that there are are communities that are historically undercovered because the business side of the paper and the journalistic side of the paper colluded in thinking we want prestige and the way that we deal with that is a six-part series 10 years after the fact about uh you know police shootings in washington dc i I raised this in my essay 20 years ago rather than just covering crime in anacostia 
they don't cover crime in Anacostia because none of the reporters live in Anacostia. Um, none of their target advertisers are in Anacostia, so they don't really give a crap. That has traditionally been the Washington Post standard. When there's more competition, they had other people who were hiving that off. Thankfully, social media has allowed at least some of uh, those voices in those neighborhoods to be seen a lot more. That is not a problem of the word objectivity for fuck's sake. And mm. you should know this. If you are working as an executive editor of a news organization in America, you should know about the news business. Um, that's what I find most appalling about all of this. It's, but, uh, it's the, the one final point on this is that, is that it's very, you're supposed to be somebody as a journalist. You're supposed to say, well, you know, there's no such thing as objectivity. This is just a stupid and outdated notion. Um, maybe. I would, at this point in my life, I'd probably trend towards no. That's actually wrong. And they know what we're talking about when we say these sorts of things. And it's not as, as if we talk about objectivity in these kind of magical ways. But when she says, whose objectivity, the white objectivity, I don't believe there's two, there's racial versions of objectivity. I do believe that objectivity in the way that we talk about it, or people might talk about it, or, you know, hold it up as an ideal. I think if you add, I mean, most people say, you know, I mean, I see this a lot online, people who just don't really get the news business and they don't engage with it much. They'll see a, you know, George Will piece in the Washington Post and be like, well, that's not very objective, not realizing that it's an opinion piece and these are different things. This is all the time, by the way. What people mean by this is that if you are going to tell a story, <coughs> please present both sides without lacing it with your opinion. Can that be done? The woman from the Associated Press, that's the place where you would expect it to be done, the Associated Press. He had a little punchiness in the New York Times, he had a bit in the Wall Street Journal, in the Guardian, etc. I mean, obviously different in, in, in the UK. But I don't think that's a horrible thing, a horrible standard to try to uphold. But when you do the thing that is so incredibly tedious and boring these days, which is infuse it with race and say that, oh, this is a white version of objectivity. No, it's not. It's a rich version, if you want to say these sorts of things. I don't think it's anybody's version. It's a very straightforward thing. Tell both sides of the story and try not to lean on the scale in value one side more than the other. That's all people are saying. Um, does that happen all the time? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. That's, that's fine. If you don't want that to be the case, that's also fine. But to wrap up objectivity in some sort of you know racial cloak and say that people who are, are, are reporting the news um, are doing it through a racial lens and they're not paying attention to the concerns of X, Y, and Z. It's so preposterous that I don't even know where to start with it. Maybe we should finish by, by not starting with it, but it's a very, <laughs> very strange way of looking at the world is that, you know, and I would say that the opposite is true now. There was how many cops that were arrested the other day? Uh, for uh, killing somebody after beating them to death five? in Memphis. Five? Yeah. Five, five and then the plus two since then, I think. Uh, have they, yeah, they, have they, they, right? they been they arrested found, now? I don't know. Okay. They, they were fired. They were walking and, down the street. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're fired. Okay. But I, I don't they know. They drove they by and they were like, as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, D.L. Hewley will tell us about that if you want. I do. To I do want but, to ask one one more question about this piece, though, just about the concluding section, which the whole thing, it is it is like a uniquely bad piece of writing. It is all the, the points that it's trying to make, especially in the conclusion, are pretty inscrutable. I, I'm, I'm wondering about two things. One, we urge news organizations to first strive not just for accuracy, 
based on verifiable fact, but for but also for truth. Th- those are the same. What thing. does that mean? What does that mean? Nothing. What Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward called the best attainable version of the truth. That's that, correct. This means original journalism. I, I agree with what that. What does that mean? Be- well, the, what Woodward and Bernstein are saying is that you, what is available to you at the time, sometimes it changes. Right. And you, it's not as if you were, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, um, you know, play the ref on this one. It's just that you, you actually just didn't know all that there was to know. Mm-hmm. Like it's a like COVID sort of thing. Right. Yeah. 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 It's a sort of COVID thing. You figure out these things much later. But what I was saying about, about the, um, Memphis thing, the reason I brought that up is that to say that this stuff doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. The problem is that it does happen too much is that you saw something that wasn't racial and people desperately trying to make it racial, trying to push it through that person. So you could actually write a piece the same day that, sh- that demonstrated the problems with this way of thinking, which is to say that we're actually con- we're conforming the facts, which we know do not conform to your narrative, mm-hmm. but you're sort of reconforming them to say that there's something racial about this, whether it's the massage parlor stuff in Atlanta, whether it is this shooting, we see this all the time, of that let's try to get it into our box and our box is about identity and it is about, you know, racial politics. You know, we have a lot of examples of, of what Len Downey is talking about being unbelievably um, bad. And, you know, for lack of a better word, I can't think of something better than just bad. It takes a story and twists it in a way that, you know, leaves this kind of orbit of facts and into this stratosphere of, of racial politics, because that is what they're interested in. It's the only way they can think. And I see this, uh, amongst young, young journalists all the time, yeah. uh, people that I've and worked with and people that I'm around. Yeah. And it's not just racial politics. It's an oftentimes, um, I mean, a, a lot of the energy behind it is we need to be able to say that Donald Trump and the Republican party right. of course. The, it can be a lot of things. is yeah. uniquely bad yeah. and, yeah. uh, and stop, allowing him to game the machinery and the traditions of uh, traditional journalism in such a way to make it seem like, um, you know, uh, he is just a normal participant in politics. He's, he's something I kind of agree with that as an analysis. I don't agree with it as a call to action to change the way that you do news gathering mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um it's a uh, it, you can change the way that you do news gathering in the sense that you want to understand the political audience better than you do because you were completely blind and by you now i'm doing like was it Brady? not Brady's nelson the other guy uh the brat pack art uh, uh author who uh, wrote in the second person um uh, I mean, me, uh, you know, you change, you had a different assumption about the country than actually existed. And so it should cause you to check your priors in that sense, but it shouldn't cause you to take a shortcut. I mean, that's a uh, Václav Havel has a fantastic, uh, discussion about the, the, the sort of timeless temptation of ideology is that it's a shortcut. It, it gets you to a place sure. quicker than you otherwise would go and you could save time and who doesn't want to save time. Yeah. And yeah. so you save time. And this where this piece is a wonderful companion piece to what is it? What a four part series in Columbia journalism. Oh, yeah. Kind yeah, of surprisingly about that. Um, that uh, is uh, that talks about how the media screwed up so badly in the Russiagate story. And what is one? Of, and I haven't read the, the uh, piece. You guys read a bit more than I have. Uh, but what is one of the uh, self-evident problems and reasons why the Russiagate story was covered as it was? People just knew. People just knew in their bones that Trump was corrupt. 
that Trump was playing footsie with Vladimir Putin, uh, that he was uniquely this and uniquely that. And so they took a shortcut and they took a shortcut um, and they continue to. And this is also uh, tied together with one of the uh, most recent and most damning Twitter files uh, from Matt Taibbi about the Hamilton 68 group which is just this absolute vaporware organization completely widely quoted all over the place as proving I got, we have a list of 600 uh, accounts that are tied up with Russian intelligence, their bots and, and all this, um, including plenty of people who just sort of are commenters on American politics and mm-hmm. had nothing to do with being on the take of anybody as far as we know. Um, and it was vaporware and Twitter knew it internally called them on it internally, but then they didn't uh, follow up on it. And as we know more about it um, and challenged the the group that created it, you could see there was just absolutely no there there. But Hamil- it was Hamilton 68 that actually played the traditions of news gathering and played into what newsrooms wanted, which was a thin veneer of proof. Which was, my God, Facebook had 1,123 accounts that said something once and for or about Cambridge Analytica and therefore the election, right? You just wanted the thinnest amount of cherry pickable data uh, from an authoritative sounding uh, organization, and it fits into your pre. Uh, conceived ideas about this, Donald Trump. That is the problem. This is the problem of journalism. And you compare that mm-hmm. to what Landowney is saying, and is literally nothing significant in that piece. There's there's no bits of data. It's just a sort of random, uh, you know, assemblage of people saying, you know, the white view, <laughs> okay. like as if this is a real thing. And there's like, there's no white views, a rich view, liberal view, conservative view, maybe people that have more emphasis depending on how they grew up. But it's not like a, this is not the actual overriding problem in American journalism. Mm-hmm. If you look back, uh, which I think the Jeff Girth piece in CJR, uh, and Jeff Gerth, who has spent, I think, 30 years at the New York Times, who I always really liked as a really straight shooter, despite the fact that, like, if you looked at his background, he used to work for George McGovern. His wife was, I think, Chris Dodds, like, uh, worked for Chris Dodd or something when, when I, maybe he was the head of the DNC. I can't remember who it was, but, um, but, you know, and recused himself from, from certain coverage back in the day because of it. But you would expect him to be this kind of lefty hatchet man if what Landowney actually is saying is true. That all these, your background is what makes your journalism. Well, that's not really the case here because um, Jeff Griffiths has, has always been, I've always, again, really uh, appreciated his work. And he wrote this piece for CJR, which is one of four. And you notice that a lot of journalists who are, you know, desperate to get people to respond to them. That's the hardest thing about journalism, by the way. If you don't know anything about journalism, the hardest thing about journalism is getting people to say yes, to sit down and talk to you. The writing part is easy. Um, you know, formulating the entire kind of, idea of the piece is easy dealing with editors is a pain in the ass but it's easy at the end of the day it's like if you don't have access it's a 99 of journalism is getting people to talk to you so journalists know this very well but jeff girth could not get a lot of journalists who wrote about this stuff to actually talk to him and you go through that piece and you can actually find the people that are really really admirable that are people like michael isakoff who backed away from stuff that he said initially, mm. said, this is not right. Isakoff's a great journalist. He's done some great work as a, as a, as a thoroughgoing guy. I think he got a little ahead of himself um, on the Russia stuff, but he spoke to him. But there's a lot of people that decide not to speak to him, right? But the real scandal of this piece, the scandal of the piece, the scandal included in the piece, is how the sausage is made in D.C. And that is the number of people that are working directly with Fusion GPS. 
And that is the, um, you know, hatchet man job that is like, you know, they're doing stuff for the Clinton campaign. They're the people that are, are, are you know, getting the Steele dossier from, from um, I was going to say Michael Steele, but not Michael Steele. <laughs> Christopher Steele, the MI, former MI6 agent, I guess. Um, but there is a bit of fr- about Franklin Four, in which he's sending multiple drafts of his piece for Slate about the Alpha Bank That's server, right. which turned out to be total nonsense. The FBI said it was total nonsense. And I think it was Eric Lichtblau from the New York Times, who's no, no longer there, long after it was sort of debunked, was still sticking to the story. But he's four, according to this piece, I don't know if this is true, but according to the piece, it looks like it's in CJR. It looks like it was vetted by a lot of people. Um, he was sending drafts of it back to them. These are d- interested parties. These are people that are making money off of this. These, these are people that have ideological uh, priors. And you're sending the piece back and forth to say, is this, is this, is this right? No, no, no. You send it to other journalists and other people in that universe and say, does this sound real? Not send it to people that are coming up with this stuff. It's just being spoon fed to people. Cause you know why? Is it because they're, you know, want to destroy Donald Trump? Possibly. I think more than anything, they want the glory. They want the scoop and they want it for nothing. They want to just do not a lot of hard work and it's just handed to you on a silver platter. And then you write it up and guess what? You're on all the talk shows that night and people love it and it gets 4 million hits, which is what happened in the case of Franklin Ford. The description of that, that times meeting where Dean Bacay is, is oh God, like yeah. shocked to discover that Mueller won't be proceeding with charges is actually pretty astonishing to read like after yeah. reading that, that opinion piece about objectivity being the problem. And it shows you the stark contrast between a newsroom that is at least interested in the appearance of seeming unbiased and one that has become mm. so thoroughly fundamentalist that it can't even reckon with the world manifesting truths that seem to be, you know, inconsistent with the things that you've committed yourself to believe. And so you go on persisting in your now, like, obviously debunked belief. Insisting that reporting that now seems to be far more questionable than it did a little while ago to say, I think we covered this better than anybody else. (laughs) We did manage to win some awards. Like it's, it's astonishing. There's, there's been no, no reconciling um, themselves to the fact that so much of this was an error and the errors were all made precisely because of what is being prescribed now, a sense of, Commitment exactly to right. the capital T truth, which ironically is another kind of objective objectivity. Like it is the belief in this objective truth um, in all cases. And it's the reason I asked about the, the, the project of trying to find like verifiable facts versus giving the best approximation of the truth, because it sounds like a, a kind of recipe for disaster. Like this is what you're going to get, like more of these predictable one direction systemic uh, <laughs> error-prone reporting, which is precisely why people don't trust these publications. But there's just no awareness of it whatsoever. Um, but it is interesting to see this piece in the CJR, certainly be following uh, the subsequent subsequent coverage of this. This is a paragraph that I sent you guys, which I was really stunned by. I, apparently, this has come out, and I hadn't, I hadn't seen it, which I think is part of the problem, because I'm somebody who follows the news pretty closely. I'm reading and listening and all that stuff all day. And this should be um, widely known because it calls into question a lot of the 
a lot of the um, kind of methodology of the people that were coming out with stuff about Trump and, and Russia. And again, you do the throat clearing, but you, there's so many things to attack him on because um, he's a horrible, horrible person and who's somebody uh, – because in this piece, by the way, uh, or in another piece um, related to this, I think I – think, um, uh, uh, what, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Woodward was saying something that Trump was treated unfairly on the Steele dossier. And Trump was trumpeting this today on True Social. Yesterday, he sued <laughs> yeah. uh, Bob Woodward for $48 million. That shows you how much. Even a broke clock is right yeah. once a day. Exactly. So or this is the twice. piece. This is the, 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 the sentence from uh, this Jeff Gerth piece that really shocked me. So on January 26th, the campaign, the Clinton campaign, allegedly upped the ante behind the scenes. Clinton was said to have approved a, quote, proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security services. Uh, that's according to, say, this is how, you know, generous he is in the reporting. Behind the scenes, it was said to have, and then quotes, and let's find out where that quote is from. According to notes declassified in 2020 of a briefing <laughs> CIA director John Brennan gave President Obama a few days later. So that's actually coming from the CIA director uh -huh. who's saying, oh, by the way, uh, the Clinton campaign says they're going to try to make a, a big campaign issue of Donald Trump being a Russian asset. Yep. Um, that. It should call into question a lot of this stuff. Yeah, this was this right? was reported at the time. I, I distinctly remember seeing I, I it in it. the New York Times. Well, it. part of the reason you missed it, if I could find it quickly, I wish I could. It should have been the headline, it, right? It was. The, the best bit of this, which I was reminded of, I did actually remember this bit, when Trump, uh, <laughs> Jeff Gross is like, he it just wants to be liked by the press. And that's like he gets so mad about it because they don't like him. And he has this like the longest like, interview that he gave was with like the new york times i think it was the editorial board and at the end of it he says like new york times the jewel you're the jewel in the media you see you're so great you're the jewel and then he's like can we be friends can, could we, can we get along and it's like that is so dumb that i can't believe a president would ever say it or a, or a soon-to-be president i don't know, i think it might have been after he won but before he became president but i absolutely loved that i thought it was so unbelievably stupid and so unbelievably Donald Trump, you guys are the best. Like he will say anything <laughs> in any situation, trying to get a little bit of favor. And it's like, you literally told the New York Times that they were the best. The jewel is what he said. I mean, it's unbelievable. Hey, hey Michael, you're a historian. Um, uh, is there, a, is there a, a word commonly used to describe it when in an American domestic political context, you accuse a political opponent of being uh, in collusion with, working for, or corrupted by a foreign government, particularly based in Moscow. Do we, are, do we have common words to describe that? Do we have like, Alger Hiss? Like short, yeah, like shorthand. Yeah, we call them. We call them Alger Hiss. We call them traitors. We call them quislings. Um, usually, people that like, would lined up against what, the wall and be shot. What, yeah, but what do we call the accusation of that? Especially if it's not. A, a particularly well conspiracy? sourced <laughs> accusation. No, I, one of the reasons why this is shocking is that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around sometimes that, 
Hillary Clinton could just like, hey, let's accuse Donald Trump of being a puppet of Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Like that's a normal thing that we do in American politics. Granted, Donald Trump is not normal in American politics. And so people are a little bit scrambled. But that doesn't mean that you can walk around accusing a major party political candidate without really very good evidence of being a puppet of Russia. Um, And yet she did that to him. She did that to Jill Stein and she did that to Tulsi Gabbard. Mm-hmm. That's three times at least that Hillary Clinton has a Hillary Clinton gets security clearances. She used to be the, the secretary of state. She was the first lady. She was a senator. She's had some jobs over the years, probably worked for the Clinton Foundation, which used to be a scandalous organization. Yeah. And also used to be a organization that people talked about. None that doesn't happen anymore. Um, and uh, and she can do that. And it's not considered to be all that scandalous. It is scandalous. Mm-hmm. Tulsi Gabbard, I think, is is a bit loose between the earlobes. Um, Jeez. I did not know where that was. Jeez, man. What? Just take it easy. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, It's a phrase I've never heard, but I'm I'm happy. I'm happy that you leaned from her her nose and her her mouth and everywhere else. All the, all the places. Just bleed. Oh, she bleeds. <laughs> that's, that's what? Where are you guys going with this? I'm just saying she's a bit goofy. Yeah. And, uh, and I will be the first to say she's a bit goofy. I think I said that on the, uh, Megyn Kelly when we were on, uh, a few months ago. And she's not a puppet of Vladimir Putin. Like, knock it off. It's possible to have disagreements with people or to make assessments of people without doing that. And part of the derangement of the Trump era, and Trump is a, is a, is part of that derangement, a principal part of that derangement is in, uh, what the lengths that people went to, to just make these accusations and just do the whole, Hey man, there's a lot of smoke. There must be fire. Yeah. Just in next time anyone says smoke and fire and Trump and Russia, just Google Hamilton 68 and every single news organization out there and see if there have been apologies. And there really have, you know, it's funny because it's a hard position to be in, to be the type of person that, really dislikes Donald Trump and wishes he was never on the American political scene and hoping that he doesn't come back, or if he does, that he is uh, sent back to Mar-a-Lago pretty quickly. And also not being somebody that thinks that the way that the reporting went, which was, again, I I don't know who just talking about a shortcut, that this is uh, when you said Václav Havel, this was the shortcut to, to Donald Trump. Everything that could be said, should be said, and we'll relax our standards while talking about accuracy and without evidence. One of the things in this piece, and there are three, I guess three or four, I didn't realize, because I had to look this up, that the other ones are out. Um, Maybe they came out later today, but I'll read them tonight um, when I'm going to bed, because this is a really fascinating bit. I'm going to have to check this. I presume it was fact-checked. But Jeff Gerth says the two most inflammatory and enduring slogans commandeered by Trump in this conflict were fake news and the news media as, quote, the enemy of the American people. Um, the funny thing about this is that Gerth says the, face, the phrase fake news was limited to a few reporters and a newly organized social media watchdog. The idea that the media were, quote, enemies of the American people was voiced only once just before the election and on, a, uh, on an obscure podcast and not by Trump, according to a Nexus search. Um, it's pretty interesting that, that I, I presume that Trump then took a hold of enemies of the people. But that thing was not something that was being said commonly before the election. 
I didn't know that. I presumed it was. And uh, that, that's that reads wrong to me. It actually. reads yeah, wrong I, to me. Yeah. But yeah. I think that what he's trying to say, and if this is what he's trying to say, it's actually kind of a a miss in this piece. It's kind of a swing and a miss because it's like, did he actually end up saying it? It's like, well, before the election, it wasn't said by Donald Trump. Um, you know, it's kind of a distinction without a difference, too, because, you know, I've been booed in the press pen at many Trump rallies when he implores the people who do it, I, uh, by the way, always very good naturedly, which I think is so funny. They turn around like smiling and booing because it's like, these are people I think like wrestling and are treating this like wrestling and always would talk to you afterwards, would come over and say things. I've said this a million times and there were people that had come over to me and say, ah, which fake news thing are you part of? This happened to me uh, covering the DeSantis thing. People were like, ah, what? And, and they were all, they were always like laughing about it and be like, oh, you're going to make me look bad. And I'm always saying like, no, I guarantee you what you say is going to make you look bad, not me. <laughs> and they do it every time. They walk right into the trap every time. But um, but yeah, I thought that was an, an interesting thing. And I'm not entirely sure if I understand what he's trying to say. But um, when trying to say that a lot of this stuff was a construction of the media, probably, not probably, definitely true. But the other part of this, which is just kind of presumed in the piece, but it's worth reminding people of, is that Donald Trump walks into all of this stuff too. I mean, he's desperate to provide them with the material that they want, you know, by... Like one thing that actually was interesting, and I, and I said this at the time, and I, I was amazed that people actually said this with such confidence when he said the Hillary Clinton, you know, it, Russia, if you're listening, which go back That's and listen, true. he's clearly <laughs> making a joke. And the Clinton campaign, like, focused in on this right afterwards and said, see, he's calling them to do, like, n- no, if he was, uh, you know, an agent of the KGB since with the GRU since 1985 or 86, as John Chait said, I suspect he'd have a little wireless device where he could tap out this stuff and not say it in front of an entire crowd of people in a bank of television cameras. But That's just how good he is. It's like yeah. Johnny Depp in the Mexican movie wearing the CIA shirt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as a CIA agent. Yeah. I think the man from CIA... <laughs> <laughs> uh oh we lost camille yeah we lost camille he went down, he went down. what does he do he's coughing he, oh. he can't make noise yeah he can't he turns did his he, mic off he did, he let's, cho- he cho- let's talk he, shit about him his mic's off what he's he choking on a hot dog so was coughing. it was just coughing what was that yeah. did you have a jolly ranch no I, I, I laughed and then i coughed i'm still getting over things i have this lingering oh, yeah. cough it's awful i don't think you ever get over that thing i think drugs keep you alive <laughs> <laughs> Matt, it, they, they found him a cure for magic. It worked for him. It worked for me. Yeah. Um, Who? <laughs> what else? Uh, what else is on the docket? What do we? What do we got here? What else is on um, the docket? We got a lot of things on the docket, I guess. But but um, I think that the most important one we just dealt with because it doesn't really deal with the news cycle in any particular way. Well, I'm. Can I'm we talk in- about one thing? Oh, please, Hunter Hunter Biden. Oh God. Oh God. Yeah, 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 yeah. dude, that does tax man. From wild. 2019. How the fuck From did they- 2019. But dude, Again. how are these people that have the laptop not reporting this two years ago? <laughs> this is the best <laughs> one. Wait a minute, Moynihan. Girl's literally being like, I'm broke. Let me explain this if you haven't heard this. I think yeah, New York Times, uh, the, the New York but Post. Can, your time can I, before you get into this, can I ask you a question? Because yeah. you, I remember you had a conversation with Bannon at some point. Yes, I did. And did Bannon yeah. had the laptop at that point, or at least? Yes, he did. did he? Yeah. What did he say to you about the laptop? I cannot tell that. 
What? He did. He did say. He did say. You you got no job. No, I know. But he said to me, he was like, you know, you guys don't want the laptop. I, you know, I could give you a laptop. And I was like, I want the motherfucking laptop. <laughs> I was like, literally, give me, like, messenger that shit over. Like, you know, upload it to WeTransfer. Give me the fucking laptop. But uh, he was, he, he, the thing about Bannon that's really interesting is that he only wants to deal with the mainstream media. Yeah. Despite the fact that he has, like, the war room and all that stuff. He loves mainstream media. He knows that's the way to get to get your, your uh, and, but he just is mad at the mainstream yeah. media all the time. But but what what didn't come out, he told me some things, by the way, that I thought would come out that didn't come out. And they were very creepy. And um, I'm not sure if they're true, so I won't say them. But um, I would assume they would come out now with the number of people who have actually seen this. But the, what do they rhyme with? Um, <laughs> being gross about people in your family? How about that? Is that okay. Does that rhyme? Yeah, it rhymes. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's an echo. I thought, I thought so. It's an echo. Yeah. As Ken Burns said, <laughs> attributing it to uh, Winston Churchill and or Mark Twain. Um, listen to the paid point of what I'm talking about. Yeah. But no, he, he, this, this text exchange, which is wild, uh, is this is really kind of gross. It's a girl who works for him, um, who I think is in her 20s, and is like, I'm broke. And he's like, well, why don't you FaceTime me naked? And, give, and like it's all about i'll give you money if you facetime me and then he's like let's have a game whoever comes first wins he's like if you win you get the money if i w- if i win you it's the same jobs and i was like this is a jobs what? program i don't understand what is the problem here this is fucking shovel ready he has got his pants around his ankle a fucking shovel in one hand but he's literally like i will pay you it's it's i mean good lord i couldn't believe it and i maybe i'm missing something and that's why the the times hasn't reported on it (laughs) Uh, but i don't think i am i don't think i was pretty crazy did you see did you read these things just i read it today and and also today i saw right before we started recording ron klain who is one of these uh, serially overpraised um within the beltway type of uh former chief of staff of biden who stepped down today in the ceremony um he was getting all for clemped and, and ugly crying a little bit at his little thing and uh and he praised joe biden as a family man and a parent mm-hmm. at he, this thing he, he is a parent <laughs> that's true uh and it's fine i'm not saying like we got to be mean to joe biden as a parent he's gonna suffer through a lot of tragedy in his life and we should be respectful of that um but we also don't need to go out of his, our way to talk about what an awesome parent he is to a person who um, obviously made a lot of money through his connections with his father while sliding down desultorily uh, on naked on slides and sending text messages in, in 2019. Right. Dad's running for president finally. And he's finally has a chance this time because people are so fed up with Trump and you're going to be sending text messages like this or, or messages uh, like this, uh, it's it's astonishing. Um, there's incredible douchebaggery in the family. One more thing about Biden. This is fucking nuts, by the way. Um, the Tyree Nichols uh, tragedy in Memphis. Uh, Biden called his parents. And I want you to know this got no, I, I just looked it up. It, it literally gets no coverage. No coverage. The first thing that comes up is mighty990.com. I don't know what the fuck that is. Probably like some local um radio station 
but it's played on CNN, but nobody stops to point it out. Um, and he's trying to relate to these people and the tragedies of his life, which he does quite frequently. Um, and then he says, I lost my son in a war to the parents of Tyree. Will he ever stop lying about this? It's sickening. It is actually fucked up that he said, I mean, so there's two ways of thinking about this. It's either the most disgustingly exploitative thing you've ever heard in your life, or the guy's lost the plot. Either way, that's, pro- that's a problem from the president. Mm-hmm. He said, no one has pointed this out. That he said, I lost my son in a war. And then the next line is, a consequence of the war in Iraq. So I think he catches himself because he said that lie so many times, but I've been caught in it. And then he says, a consequence um, and I know people say that too, but I don't know. I lost my son in a war, a consequence of the war in Iraq, being there a year, and I lost my daughter, and then he goes into that too. But really? Democracy dies in darkness, somebody said, um, without evidence. Do we not care that the president keeps on lying that his son was killed in war in public settings? That's kind of uh, so weird. I- Is that not weird to anyone? It's go. It it actually is caught by a lot of the fact checking organizations. It's just that no one cares or talks about it. Uh, as I mentioned previously on this podcast, just go to like politifact.com and there's a there's a Joe Biden page, and you'll go and see absolutely batshit things that he has said that aren't true. Uh, this month, last month, the month before, the month before. Oftentimes, yeah. personal anecdotes about his family. Um, about giving a purple heart to his uncle, which he didn't do, yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, and it's constant, and and uh, that's a recurrent one um, about his son and, and how he died. Uh, it's uh, it's it's it, so bizarre. I find it, it really bizarre. It should be a matter. I'm not even of, mad at it. I'm just. I think it's bizarre. I mean, it's a it's a tell. Um, it's a tell at the very least of someone who's lived their life uh, publicly, uh, politically, their entire adult life. And who just tells stories over and over again to the point where it all becomes a total abstraction. Um, I and, think that's right. I think that's correct. Yeah. I think that's and right. also from an early time, meaning like back in his college career, had a predilection for uh, shaving off the edges of story and plagiarizing, um, <laughs> yeah. inventing, yeah. inventing stuff about your life that didn't <sighs> happen to you, happen <sighs> to other people. Um, that whole thing. And like, <laughs> and not really suffering consequence. He suffered one consequence from that, which was that he didn't, he had to drop out of the presidential race in September of 1987. Yeah. And he felt really bad about that for a really it's long time. But then Barack Obama was amazing. It's amazing. He's like president, yeah. but like, it's kind of the George Santos thing, right? Yeah. It's it, it should end your presidential career, but Donald Trump has completely ruined that. We talked about that, but Ben Dreyfus in the last episode, um, like it's just like there's no standard of that anymore. But if you're just a, it's, tr- a, it's actually uh, Trump's fault, you know, that, a that congressman you, you lie that, in that much. Case, yeah, yeah. In it's that like case, sw- like swinging five bats in the on deck circle. <laughs> it's like does, yeah. it feels like nothing <laughs> when you get in the when you. It's like you're digging in. Although, although like, it does look like not even, it does look like nothing. he may be on his way out, though. I mean, he's he's surrendered all his committee assignments this week. They're, they're, Seems like, yeah, it seems like there might be uh, investigations um, spinning up. There are a yeah, half a dozen so, investigations I mean, and right now. Likely, yeah, likely to, to arrive at a, a not so great outcome for him. Um, Moynihan, you, you um, all of his expense pointing out uh, Biden's remarks to the parents reminded me of the statement that they issued immediately after the video was released 
um, which mm -hmm. the first beats of it, like so many, I was outraged and deeply pained to see this horrific video, the beating that resulted of Tyree Nichols, uh, Terry Nichols, uh, death. It is another Tyree Nichols. Terry Nichols is a terrorist. Well, yeah. Who was convicted in blowing up Oklahoma? City. Well, I mean, I I might expect, <laughs> Sorry, just to be clear, I might, I might expect the president of the United States to to not be. So, well, yeah, he's know, probably he probably made a mistake. Yeah. I just want to make sure you. Know. Um, but but a, a reminder of the profound fear and trauma and the pain and the exhaustion that Black and Brown Americans experience every single day. That's Joe Biden. That's Joe Biden. Well, his speech commenting, but commenting on the release of the video, it, it's just yeah, yeah. remarkable, like the opportunity to talk about any number of issues that you could perhaps highlight around this to the extent you need to make this particular tragedy uh, another opportunity to beat or to, to ride your favorite political hobby horse. Um, and in this instance, it's just another bizarre yeah. Like yeah. the black, it's the weird. the trauma, the pain, and exhaustion that Black and Brown Americans experience every single day. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the CNN uh, Jasmine Wright, who was uh, was reading the the quote um, for CNN, called it a profound line. It was profound. A profound, a line? profound line. A profound line. Profound line. I was going to say, that'd be really surprising. She's like, that's a profound... So actually, lie. among the least profound things that anyone can say at any point in time in, in America these days. I, I think we say it every single day <laughs> for every single thing. Um, yeah, you know you're patting the patting it a little bit when you say that's a profound You lie. sent around yeah. the uh, the story this week, uh, Moynihan, about the, uh, the IRS... Um, the, the IRS algorithms that are supposed to be racist... Um, although the headline oh, of the right. story, <laughs> but, but the story tells you they're not yeah. like, within five seconds. The headline yeah. of the story yeah. didn't even allude to that. The headline of the story alluded no. to the IRS being much more likely to audit black people um, than any other group. And then, as you pointed out, like in the first couple of paragraphs, it indicates, well, of course, you're not reporting their race at all because you're not permitted to. So the IRS people yeah. who are doing these audits and it's, and it's robots. I don't know. <laughs> also it's software <laughs> and the software is not looking yeah. for things related to race. What it's actually doing is looking for the most obvious examples of like detectable mm -hmm. and provable fraud. Like people who are lying about the number yeah. of dependents who are claiming uh, a tax credit um, when they don't have it and who are in pretty conspicuous ways lying about the amount of income that they have coming in. Um, and to the extent you're doing that and you don't have a complicated tax return that includes a bunch of business returns and stuff like that, or, you know, yeah. different kinds of contracting income, these are the sort of things that get you caught. And it just so happens that black people are kind of over indexing there. Um, and it, it's just, it's so interesting to see them frame it in that way as another like racial justice story. When in fact, the opportunity perhaps is to go, you know, just simplify the tax code and perhaps it won't be so easy to get in trouble mm -hmm. for those things that's, or that's to lie right. yeah. in those particular ways, because presumably yeah. some of those people are in fact lying. Um, but it does suggest that it's perhaps easier for rich people to get away with hiding the fact that or obscuring their incomes and paying less in taxes than they're supposed to. That's true. But yeah, this is sure. not news to anyone. This is, this is no, how it works. Everybody knows. Yeah. That. 
So, yeah. And this has been, Liz Wolf has written a bunch about this over at Reason. Um, it's been the case for several years now, and this came up oftentimes when uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act was being negotiated, which included an $87 billion increase for the IRS over 10 years, which is the biggest you know, increase that the agency has received in a generation or more. Um, that every year uh, the IRS investigates the poor's more than the riches. And it has been like that for a really long time. And why? Um, because it's easier. Uh, if you were just doing cost efficiency and you were the IRS, it's easier to send a robot on someone and see if they screwed up the earned income tax credit, which they, it's easy to do. It's one of the easiest ones to get wrong uh, with no malice before thought you just like screwed it up because it's kind of complicated to calculate and, and put it out there. And so it's also very easy to, you just send a little letter. It's like a little automatic uh, one page letter um, saying, hey, you owe us actually, uh, you know, uh, $600 more. Okay, here it is. Um, and that you will get more of a return on your investment for enforcement doing that uh, than otherwise. And it's always people like Reason who are accused of like doing the bidding of the monocle wearers who point this out year after year. And that when you boost enforcement, um, they're like, oh, you know, at some point, Janet Yellen, of all people. Um, wrote uh, in a really strongly worded letter. She's uh, great. <laughs> God, she's terrible. Oh, we love her. She's amazing. Just goes around the world trying to create like a global tax system and also making sure that companies like report enough about what they're doing about climate justice or some goddamn sure, thing. Of um, but she wrote a very sternly worded letter saying, um, if we pass this $87 billion, you know, we have to make sure that uh, it's not going to increase enforcement on poorer people like all the re uh, the Republicans are saying. Um, it's absolutely going to increase enforcement on poorer people. And, and thankfully, they were so panicked about the politics of it that they made these really um, uh, over their skis promises about that that are going to be easily disproven the first year that they uh, start spending this money. Um, they are going to spend money where it's easier to spend, which is uh, going after poor people. Unfortunately, there are more black people associated with being poor than there are on a proportional basis than there are other populations. That's it. That's it. It's just robots going after the the cheap stuff. That's maybe, it. maybe, and I'm gonna yeah, yeah. I'm gonna propose something that's radical, uh -oh. and maybe Janet Yellen, who is uh, the uh, Len Downey of uh, people in government, <laughs> she, maybe the problem here, as Camille alluded to earlier, uh -oh. is the complexity <laughs> of the tax code that maybe. We could simplify it a little bit, and that would actually create less havoc for people who are poor and that you wouldn't need somebody to pay an enormous amount of money to to get you out of all this stuff because there are ways of doing it. <laughs> and that's the thing. When people always say like, oh, you know, Bill Gates doesn't – like, well, first of all, beyond the fact that you, know, you, you can't uh, tax unrealized gains for a lot of reasons. Yes. It's just basic, you know. You you, you Forcing owe eight million to sell dollars today in order to. Yeah. They they you owe nothing the next yeah. day, right? And trust me, my stock portfolio is a great example of why you shouldn't do that because um, it's a lot of red. It looks like a fucking you know Albanian communist flag, it's just red all the way through. But maybe if we didn't make it in a way that is so complex, when things are complex. You get to hire people to make them less complex, to dedicate their lives 
to making them less complex. Now, who can pay for that stuff? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe poor. No, rich people. Sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I got. I got it wrong. Rich people can. So if you want to simplify the tax code, you might take care of some of this stuff. Maybe. And simplifying the tax code does not mean taxing unrealized gains, <laughs> which doesn't make sense to people who um, are about 90% of the population and about 95% of the people that I talk to. I'm like, well, why just can't, you know, he's worth billions of dollars. Why can't you just tax? I'm like, okay, well, are you ready? Let's sit down and talk about this. But um, that's not the problem. The problem is it's unbelievably Byzantine to file your taxes in the U.S. It's not that way in most other places. Wouldn't it be funny if Biden's first week of government, whole of government, uh, executive order, demanding that every single government, federal government agency uh, investigate, come up with reports about possible disparate impacts of government policy among different populations uh, in the name of equity. Mm -hmm. It's called equity something or other. Um, equity this 2000. executive order. <laughs> it's a robot. Yeah. Equity 2000. <laughs> the highway system is racist. Like, I, don't know. I don't think that's true. Wouldn't it be funny? Actually, if you entrusted it to a, like a chat GPI or whatever the hell those things called, um, they, they, they would say there was uh, Robert. So anyway. Chat. Chat GBD um, uh, oh, no. uh, came back to <laughs> and said, uh, and said, oh yeah, minimum wage. Bad, disparate racial impacts, you know, gun control, really bad, disparate racial impacts, yeah. you know, complexity of the tax code, horrible, disparate racial impacts, putting a cap on charter schools, real, not so good, disparate racial impacts, banning fucking menthols, not so great on your racial yeah. impact. Wouldn't it be great if they came back with those reports? They absolutely the fuck a menthol will not. jewel right now. So <laughs> yeah, I was going to you say, you're understand. like blowing out some white smoke <laughs> over there, Mr. Vapor. I, 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 I got it in Texas at Bucky's with my Bucky's. Yeah, that's also <laughs> called menthol jewel. They don't have them in New it's York. cultural appropriation there, Michael Moynihan. Yeah, exactly. I, I saw well, a gentleman. You know, there's some parts of cultures I love. <laughs> Buck, Bucky's and menthol. <laughs> Did you yeah. see the Diane Ravage thing this week? No. With oh, uh, dear, no. Christina, what's her name? Pushaw, who's the, um, who, by the, the way, DeSantis. was yeah, DeSantis' yeah. press secretary. And then you have to, whether or not you agree with Christina Pushaw, whatever, you have to acknowledge there are people that are good at Twitter. <laughs> She's very good at Twitter. I have to say. She's a bit of a Wolverine. She's a yeah. Wolverine. She will slash yeah. your face. And <laughs> Diane Ravage was like, uh, tweeted something who, you, you know, was a lefty in the past and then became kind of a, of a school choice person. And then was like, these people are all monsters. School choice is wrong and went back to her lefty roots. But she tweeted something about how, um, public schools are the lifeblood of every community. And, you know, you know, if we don't have public schools, I can't remember the exact, uh, uh, phrasing, but, uh, <laughs> but Christina Pusha responded by saying, you sent both of your kids to a private school. <laughs> and she's like, but yeah, uh, but you know, uh, and I can't remember her response, but it was like, nobody forced me. It was, I have to look at this because, uh, this just, I saw this right before we started recording. And, uh, because we're talking about something, uh, relevant. I have to look this up because, uh, it's, it's, it's she did a really fucking <laughs> hilarious job. Let's see. The best choice, Diane Ravage says. That's what she says. The best choice is your local public school. It welcomes everyone. It unifies oh community. It is the glue of democracy. Christina Pushaw, why didn't you send your sons to public, local public school? You didn't want the best for them? So you paid for private school in New York City? Make it make sense. And she responds, I paid for it. 
I didn't ask taxpayers to pay for my private choice. To which Christina push on, which makes no sense. So what about parents who can't afford to pay for private school, but want to make the best choice for their kids? They don't deserve the same opportunities as your son. And Diane Ravage goes quiet. (laughs) So... Congratulations to Christina Pushoff for having a very, very funny uh, tweet exchange with Diane Ravitch and absolutely blowing her out of the water in that. This is something that uh, my former colleague Corey DeAngelis does on a daily basis to the point of just thudding repetition, but effectively so. He has said now in front of uh, half a dozen legislatures, at least, which are signing these things right and left, West Virginia, Texas, I think Governor Abbott is, is about ready to do something, Iowa. Uh, Florida, it's it's now on the table. Um, he'll say fund students instead of systems. Yep. Um, Arizona passed this as well. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. And Corey DeAngelis always does this with everybody, teachers union apologist on Twitter, just like you sent your kids to private mm-hmm. schools. There's mm-hmm. never mm-hmm. a single syllable you or character wasted. Yeah. It's just yeah. boom. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, someone tried to come back to him like, you know, you went to public school. And he's like, uh huh. What do yeah, you that's- what, what, <laughs> What do you ch- the point is not are everyone you? should go to private school is that we should all have the choice you dummy good lord and it's to to an extent that people are really under uh, uh appreciating especially in the culture war discussion over education which is my god it, even today it's crazy like conservatives are so happy with DeSantis they're so happy with going after um DEI and and public universities and we're going to talk about this in future episodes with people who are more involved with it and uh and have a uh, debates and whatnot but it's certainly been in the news and conservatives are so incredibly happy because he's fighting and he's punching um and he's uh, dismantling dei uh, departments um uh in all of these kind of culture war depictions of what's happening at public universities and public schools the simplicity and camille has talked about this a thousand times um is staring you right in the face which is if you do indeed fund students and not systems Mm -hmm. um then these arguments become irrelevant on yeah, some level you can just you can argue about it at the school that you've chosen to send your kid at you could argue among your own school and say i don't think that's a good idea or i do think that's a good idea and it takes all the pressure out uh we're increasingly getting to the point where we're realizing we kind of have incompatible uh lack of trust for different political camps the all the uh the intermediary organizations these supposedly neutral organizations law enforcement media that we talked about previously schools um are under this incredible amount of pressure because people don't trust each other and this is a vehicle for that lack of trust the way to get at it is this school choice thing and what people don't really understand is that the school choice environment completely changed last year supreme court said you could send dollars public dollars to religious schools that changes everything That means that instead of just like charter public schools that have this emphasis or that emphasis, you could just go straight for it. And right now people are going straight forward. It's, it's, it's over the, the, the period of time when 75%, 80% of students are going to government monopoly K through 12 schools is over. Um, and yeah. I don't think that we've really thought through the implications of that. Many of those implications are going to be great, but those institutions, especially as the federal funding, the COVID relief funding dries up, are going to go kicking and screaming, um, as our taxpayers when they notice things like, oh, we've given these people a 50%, you know, uh, increase of funding over in this polity for the last 20 years, even though enrollment has gone down by 12%. 
Like we are giving more money for less education and people are refusing the free product to pay money for something different because they've screwed it up so bad. Just to point out one final thing about how right, you know, your colleague Corey is about people, you know, they, they send their kids to private school. They don't think about, they have no experience with this in a real way. I was in Texas and um, I was at dinner and I sat across yeah, you know, I was migrating around. There was a lot of people at dinner, and I ended up sitting across from these people um, who were from New York, and they were from Crown Heights. And the fact that they're black doesn't matter, <laughs> but it does because, you know, in this context, when people talk about school choice, and it's usually, there's a lot in the context of race, which I think is a, a very weird way of looking at it, particularly when the people who oppose it have to grapple with the fact that it's very popular amongst minority minority communities. So I'm sitting across from these people, and um, the woman that's sitting next to this couple, the woman says, uh, or the guy says, this is my sister. And the reason she's here is because she moved to Texas. And I, she's from New York. And I said, uh, oh, how do you like Texas? She says, oh, it's great. And the person sitting next to her is her son, who is 15 years old, in about six foot 10 um, and 300 pounds. He's like a massive guy, like the nicest kid I've ever met in my life, but he's fucking huge and I wouldn't screw with him. And he plays football in high school and she's a nurse. And I, and I said, you go back to New York at all? And she said, I do. And when we do, my son just wants to go home, come, come back to Texas. And I said, but he grew up in New York. He remembers the rhythm of New York. And I said to him, I was like, do you miss it? He's like, yeah, I, I, sometimes. And then his mom said, I don't want him there. I don't want him in that school system Hmm. because I don't know what would happen to him. And I know bad things would happen to him. And I moved here to Texas because I got a good nursing job and because the schools were better for my son. And he's, I presume that she was also in Crown Heights. I think she was in East Flatbush. And there's some pretty rough schools over there. And she moved to Texas. And I'm like, wait a second, your version of school choice is that you moved 3,000 miles away, 2,500 miles away. So your son, and this kid, by the way, was so sweet, so like, like uh, unbelievably nice. And by her account and his account, is doing really well in school and is like on the JV football team and is going to go to the varsity football team and was talking about his future and what he wanted to do and was just like, her read on it was that I don't think the same thing would happen if she was in the school that, that he was assigned in New York. And she took a job in nursing, single mother, didn't have the money to pay for some fancy private school in Brooklyn Heights. So she moved across the country. I, people shouldn't have to do that. Now, granted, hers was for more than just a school. It was for her job, too. And she was talking about how much, by the way, she was talking about she loved low taxes. She's like, man, the taxes are so low here. I'm like, yeah, it's also a, a, a draw. In, uh, in, in Texas. But it was an amazing, just brief interaction at this dinner table in which somebody is telling me that the, the, the mechanics of school in New York um, was one deciding factor in moving to Texas. And she was there with her family because they happened to be traveling through Texas. So it was, it was a while. It was really interesting. New York has, uh, the New York State uh, used to have, <clears throat> from 1933 to 1953, 46, I think it was, uh, members of Congress, or 45, 45, uh, it now has 26. Um, 
Uh, there was a, a piece in the New York Times this week how the black population of New York City has gone from uh, one uh, quarter to one fifth in yeah. twenty years. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. a, it's a, and it makes perfect sense if. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think if you just w- measured middle or working class period, um, yeah, you have to leave. It's not I mean, a city might, for the working class. You can, it, my it's, neighborhood, it's offensive. My neighborhood was a working class Italian uh, neighborhood um, that did pretty well for itself uh, because of uh, property values and and uh, and um, uh, uh, gentrification. And the classic story here, and it's probably going to happen to the house that I live in uh, with the landlord, is that once the houses become valuable, then people just move to uh, Staten Island or uh, New Jersey um, uh, or to Long uh, or, upstate, yeah. or Long yeah. Island or upstate. Yeah. Um, and then they fight amongst each other when they try to sell like grandma's house, which is, <laughs> and grandma doesn't want to leave uh, at all. This is just sort of the, the way it goes. But yeah, you see this emptying out. This kind of the barbellization that you should talk about in California as well, where you have real, real kind of poor immigrant kind of class here, which is big end of the barbell, then super rich here and mm-hmm. a thin middle in between, which is the opposite of what I grew up in. I grew up in yeah, a in a place yeah. where the middle class was absolutely booming and California grew forever. And it's different. And you feel that sense of difference, it, uh, like a place that is no longer growing lacks a certain amount of like dynamism and, a, and I don't give a fuck attitude. You, people in New York is supposed to have an I don't give a fuck attitude and it doesn't really anymore. It, you can't, yeah, you can't really stop it. Um, but at the same time, the thing that offends me more than anything about this is that you find somebody in New York, particularly somebody in the media, who's ever written or complained about gentrification, who doesn't realize that they're part of the problem, mm. that they are gentrifiers themselves. It, it, you cannot say when you live in Williamsburg, ugh, the gentrification. You went to Columbia and used to be, this used to be a Puerto Rican neighborhood. And remember that scene in Serpico when Serpico is uh, set up by the other cops in the drug bust? And is like shot. That was in South Williamsburg. That was like like a thing that actually happened. It was in South Williamsburg, and it used to be a super violent, dangerous neighborhood. And when I first got to Williamsburg a long time ago, it was it was like a kind of transition there. But it was only after that that people complained about gentrification and said that this is something that has to be stopped. And like you're doing this from Williamsburg. You live in Brooklyn. You live in New York City. You're part of this process. I don't care if uh, it's fine by me because these are the processes that happen. And I don't like the fact that New York city is a city without a working class. I don't think it's a good thing. And I, and I feel for a number of these um, poor families who didn't buy their houses in the 1960s. or some people that make an enormous amount of money in, you know, bed in particular, when they sell the brownstone for six, seven, eight million million and they bought it in the 1960s for 15,000. That's fantastic, but that's not everybody. That's definitely not everybody. And most of the people that, you know, in the block that I'm on, on in, um, in Bed-Stuy are in housing projects. They don't get to experience any of that stuff, any of the dividends of that. So that's, that sucks and it's sad and, and one wishes it didn't happen, but it does happen and that's the way it is. And primarily because New York's zoning doesn't allow anyone to build anything anywhere. And so, you know, I was just in Houston. That's a place where that doesn't happen. And there are fewer homeless people. There's, you know, a much better and healthier middle class. And there's a lot by of economists that, that have written by about that this, yeah. doesn't that doesn't happen. He means zoning. Yeah, zoning. That yeah, there's, 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 no, there's like not, no zoning in, in Houston. Actually, it's amazing. There's no zoning. There's like yeah. no zoning. It's like you can build a Bucky's on top of a. <laughs> it's incredible. I love it. It's the best place on earth. 
They had a good time in Houston, by the way. But that kind of thing, and that's the thing that bums me out. I wrote a piece a long time ago uh, for the for the uh, Daily Beast about uh, the hypocrisies of people talking about gentrification. And you can say, like, that's just the, that's the, the way of cities. And there's a um, website, I think it's the public library, but they have um, photographs of every block over years. Like, you can look at 1920, you can look at, you know, you know West 4th Street and Bleecker. And but look at those and try to find anything that survives to this day, even 20 years ago. Everything changes in the city. Um, people move out of the city. The ethnics move to Long Island and be Italian and Jewish and et cetera, in, in outer boroughs and out into the island. But that's just a thing that happens. That's the kind of thing that's going to happen. But the thing that really chaps my ass is this idea from people that complain about it but live in New York City. How do you think you're not part of this? If you want to be really opposed to it, move to Allegheny, Pennsylvania. Write your pieces from there and I'll be fine. But you live in Brooklyn and you're kicking people out whether you know it or not. Yeah, I wish they could buy those, uh, what is it? The carbon indulgences so that you can live yeah, in yeah, Bed-Stuy yeah, exactly. yeah. and not feel so bad that's about good, the gentrification. Whoa. Yeah. You just came with a great idea. a business idea. idea. That's a we could start selling those, actually. Yeah. Uh, wait, gentrification offsets? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is great. Yeah, that's... How does it work, Camille? Well, they, <laughs> before, yeah. before I get too excited well, about it. Well, you give me your money. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you feel better. As a, as a that's it. <laughs> You feel better. I'll get... You know what? Yeah, oh, yeah. no, no. I know what, you, I yeah. know what it is. Yeah. We'll give you a sign. You're like that guy that runs the church in Brooklyn with all the fucking... Like money coming to yeah, money, me money, money. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, my Lord Jesus Christ, give me money. No, we could give you we could give you we give you a yard sign. We give you a yard sign. Mm, In this mm, house, mm. we believe that we don't really belong yeah. here, but yeah. we're staying anyways. Yeah. yeah. Just, well, It'll be official. Write, like we'll have it, like we'll use we'll use the blockchain to certify yeah. that the oh, signs are real. See? Oh, look at that. Blockchain. So it's yeah. a blockchain yeah. thing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And we'll you exactly. we'll somehow get exactly. AI involved Ledger. in there. This could be huge. Yeah. Yeah, chat This could be AI ginormous. Right. If you're interested in investing in this this brilliant new business idea that we just came up with moments ago yeah. and we're still working out, but yeah. obviously have product yeah. market and fit, I think you should mm-hmm. reach out yeah. to us at ventures at fifth column podcast.com mm-hmm. actually it's at we the fifth.com in the in the yeah, yeah. we the fifth, in, in, in the subject put gentrification offsets. yes and yes. we will we will pay those indulgences for you <laughs> you gotta send us the money first and then we'll decide what yeah to do with yeah it. just send the money yeah and you'll feel better yeah and we'll we will get the yard sign out to you straight away um which, I mean, means, which means Matt will write on a <laughs> on an old napkin from the pizza place BLM and ballpoint pen, right. and then he'll put it on the window. White people, white <laughs> people, <laughs> bad. That's right. <laughs> on the side, you could do gentrified lives matter or some that's, some. That's good. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. BLM right. and, and and WPB, white people, bad. <laughs> oh God! Oh, that's my favorite. I'm gonna. I gotta get one of those. White people bad. Unfortunately, where I am right now, if I put it in my in my window, like a wild turkey would. <laughs> so, although, yeah, I want to I want to point out something. Yeah, if you are a neighbor of mine, I don't know who you are yet, but if you're a neighbor of mine and you are listening to this podcast, 
I've got you on tape throwing your dog <laughs> into my bin. <laughs> what? Oh, I saw it. It's the worst. I, saw it when I went down this morning. It was in the bag. It was in the bag. Yeah, but it smells like dog yeah, shit. I, know, I hate and that. Like, we'll I'm put like, stuff right, in my so bin. I pull, I pull it up. Yeah. I got some. I got some. Some video surveillance. <laughs> I go through right. it. They're walking the dog at six a.m. It's too dark now. Uh, but I'm going to tell you what. It's going to get light, <laughs> and it's light about five minutes after you leave. It's going to get light soon, and I'm going to have a crisp 1080p picture of your ass. And I, so I, I, of course, because I'm an idiot, I'm talking to Joanne about this, and she's like, "You've literally lost your mind." I'm like, "I know. Stop. Just li- hear me out." And so she was like, "Are you going to sabotage?" the trash bin and i said well no when it gets lined out i'm gonna get a good picture <laughs> and then i'm gonna print it out yes. and i'm just gonna just put, put it on the all trash over the bin. yeah trash. that's good yeah so yeah. when they come up there's gonna be pictures of them that's on them good. And, like, the and it's like exactly you're a trash human you, that's it. pretty much it yeah, yeah. and it's, <laughs> i like that <laughs> and then like, the person who lives here, lives here is totally insane i'm like exactly which Man. means I'll eat your face off like i was on bath salts if you put your shit in my bin one more time man so. i you know that's important. I, I just I thought you know white people bad actually has a really nice ring to it. So I went to see if whitepeoplebad.com yeah. might be available because that would be a great domain <laughs> for the indulgence mm-hmm. business. And it was owned by Mark Lamont. It's Hill. registered. <laughs> Let me, you know what? Let me look it up. It might be. No, look it up. Look it up. It might be yeah, someone we know. Wait. Yeah, whitepeople.com. White people bad or white? Oh, people? how about white people? You can white do, folks. Yeah, you can do white yeah. folks. Why folks is with an X is bad because yeah. <laughs> when gender is a fiction, you get better domain. White names. folks, are you white really folks. doing white folks is white bad? Folks, what are you white folks is bad. What are you doing? Um, it's available. No, don't it's do available. It. <laughs> I'll buy it right now. You know, some listeners gonna buy it. Buy no, it. No, get it right now. We're gonna run it up. Get it now. It's up. That's gonna be our fucking. That should forward to we the fifth <laughs> right now. Make that a forwarding address. I like this like, idea why, a lot. Like a pit, what a is it? Why Camille like looking serious? <laughs> He's like, like with his hand not, up. not smiling. <laughs> Just looking concerned. Yeah, that should be. I'm gonna. I'm gonna like, get it. I'm actually gonna register it to my own address. That's what I'm gonna yeah, do. do it. Yeah. yeah. Wait. So so then people will be able to find your address by. Oh no no no! Address. I gotta do it. But um, what what is it? What is it? White people no. is yeah. Bad. White people is bad. white white folks. Okay. <laughs> White folks, like, white is folks bad. is bad. Wow, I think that's Shit, fine. It's a good company. Yeah, name. yeah. <laughs> it'd, be it'd be great if you if you were like if you like delivered heating oil. That was the company. <laughs> heating oil like and free, and you know, religious indulgences. Yeah, both yeah, the best price I get on heating oil is whitefolksisbad.com. It's weird. Great prices. Oh though. well, you know what? It could wow. be a dating site, and it's. And it's oh, for yeah, hot yeah. white people. See, white folks mm. is bad. Mm. Not bad meaning bad. It's bad oh, but bad oh, meaning good. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. See, this is that getting better all the time. Confuses white people. Yeah, this is, it's a community. Yeah, these many definitions confuse the whites. <laughs> um, did you see, by the way, that there was uh, that fucking idiot uh, city councilwoman who's, when, it, when I saw this, I was like, it's going to be that woman, and it was, who <laughs> wants to have a, a name, a street, which I think intersects with Malcolm X. In um in Bedsty after the honorable Elijah Muhammad oh my who had Malcolm X murdered, not the CIA. Sorry guys, but it was literally so that looks like it might even go through. So there will be an honorable Elijah Muhammad uh, street in Brooklyn, according to my sources. Oh man, which is the New York Post. <laughs> I, I guess what they say about anti-Semitism being on the rise is true. Uh, yeah, that's 
That's yeah. wild. She also proposed uh, Filthy Jews Boulevard. <laughs> the guy shot down. I don't know why. A little too explicit, I guess. <laughs> the She's Holocaust never happened. Room. Little on the nose. There. <laughs> little on the nose. Oh God! I hope that's not my city council woman, but it <laughs> is that the the one who's done. She's like a, a what's it called? Um, what is the Socialist Party called? Working Families. No, no, not that one. A Democratic D- DSA. I think she's DSA. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So it's lucky it's not named after Hugo Chavez. So just like let's count our blessings here. That's true. Yeah. Well, should we go? Yeah, we should. We should wrap because yeah. I gotta. Camille's got. The I gotta get. Face, so I gotta go. get to New York in the mornings and be on like a crazy four o'clock train. So. Yeah. That's not a good train. train? That's doing? a bad you gotta train. Do some, bad you gotta train. do some things. So. You know who's on that train? Hunter Biden. He's <laughs> going to Rehoboth. <laughs> going back to his dad's house to jerk off in the corridor. Biden. <laughs> oh, gosh. <clears throat> and let me just say, um, on Matt, so there's not any ambiguity about this. No photos of the screen that here. I'm not wearing a hat. My, my shape up is all crazy. No, no, no. I, I, I only, it's not okay. about you. It's about yeah. Ben Dreyfus. It's about shaming Ben Dreyfus. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. We, we Bye. know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.